Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Dr. Iman Tadros about the intersection between family therapy and crime. This is episode 63 of On Tenure Tracks. That's fine. Um, I'm really excited about this project. I'm calling it the Twitter project, um, mm-hmm. but I'll think of something fancier later. <laughs> um, so basically, I'm exploring um, stigmatization within social media. So using Twitter hashtags to explore what people's actual thoughts are about incarceration mm-hmm. and the criminal justice system. So it's at its very early stages. Um, me and a few co-authors are looking at what people actually think of people that are incarcerated and what their true feelings are because where do people go to discuss their feelings and post their immediate thought and emotion twitter so um yeah i think we'll get some cool stuff so how did you how did you come up with this idea like what was was what was i was on twitter (laughs) how can i find ways to make twitter work for me Yep, I <laughs> totally, completely get that. Um, so, like, why do you think this is an important, like, an important avenue into in studying corrections? So, um, a lot of what I look at is family dynamics mm-hmm. um, and people that are affected by incarceration, which are a lot of times family members that really go underserved in our communities. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research on children and parents of incarcerated uh, children, also. So going both ways but there's not really a lot on siblings and co-parents and a lot of other uh, familial relationships have gone unexplored mm-hmm. and I think that the stigma still carries on to these other family members but we really don't talk about it mm-hmm. but the stigma still there if a family member can't come to something like an event what do you say yeah right like do you say my brother is incarcerated that usually there's some kind of lie to cover it up or um I don't know, just something that gets put out there that we don't necessarily want. I'm just thinking that stigma in general Mm -hmm. doesn't just go to the person that we think it's affected by. Stigma can be really, I don't want to say just long lasting, but it can stretch over intergenerational trends um, and just so many more people than we consider. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you presented on this at CrimCon, right? Yeah, that was actually one of the papers I did, um, the lived experience of sisters of an incarcerated brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and really there was no literature on siblings, which is, again, like so weird just because there's so much on children that are affected by their parents being incarcerated and parents being affected by their children being incarcerated, but really not siblings. And stigma was one of the big themes we found. Mm-hmm. And then the social media part of it, just like adds a whole other layer of complexity Mm -hmm. because now it's like impression management for like potentially thousands of people. Right. And also 
this person that is tweeting might not have any experience with the criminal justice system at all, and they might be just saying their thoughts on it, which you don't know who's reading that, and a lot of Twitter um, accounts are public, Mm -hmm. and anyone can just look through the hashtags and see what people really think about people that are incarcerated. And if someone's Mm -hmm. reading that about their brother or their partner or their um, child's father, child's mother, it can be really hurtful. And Mm -hmm. I think those emotions aren't really unpacked on the day-to-day basis. And a lot of those things happen, um, you know, with me and my peers that are therapists in the therapy room. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's not really other places to explore those emotions uh, Mm -hmm. besides therapy because people don't really bring up these topics. And a lot of times they're taboo as well. Mm Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something that, like, I cover in my classes, and probably lots of people do from, like, the criminological side, right? Like, one of the reasons why mass incarceration has been able to last so long is that nobody wants to talk about it, <laughs> right? And there are, there are communities that have been destroyed by, by the prison system where everybody kind of internalizes that they're the only people that it's happening to. But in reality, like, you know, a large percentage of, of men in the community have been, have been incarcerated on for probably dubious reasons, right? Yeah. So what kind of hashtags are you searching? Like how, I'm, I'm just like, I guess from a methods perspective, like where, where do you start? So that's what we're struggling with right now. Um, right. So looking at doing a thematic analysis mm-hmm. um, with the hashtags, and we might change that too, just because hashtags may not give us enough rich information. Mm-hmm. So an issue we were running into last week was that when we were hashtagging um, like incarceration, criminal justice, for example, um, a lot of election stuff came up, and that's really not what we were looking for. Um, so we we decided, okay, like let's hashtag something like criminal, which is a, a term that we don't use, um, you know, mm-hmm. when we're trying to not be stigmatizing researchers, right? So the general public still uses that term. So we decided to look up the hashtag, and a lot of Donald Trump came up. <laughs> So, um, again, like looking at politics was not really what we wanted to do, but it was really kind of burying all this other or all these other tweets, I guess, that we were more so looking for. Yeah, that was that was going to be my next question was how do you how do you navigate all of the outside uh, a lot of outside noise? But Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like it's just presenting itself as a major problem. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that we might have to wait a little bit to collect the data. Uh, But um, right now what we're starting to do is just writing down different hashtags of different words like offenders, criminals, criminal justice, Mm -hmm. um, incarceration, and and just looking at those different hashtags, seeing what we find. And what we might do is just not look at the hashtags and look at any tweet that has any of these words. Yeah. That might be more helpful. I mean, it's a good thing so far that we found that a lot of associations were the ones tweeting, um, and it was about criminal justice reform, which is good news. Mm-hmm. However, we're looking for like kind of just like the everyday person's perspective, mm-hmm. and that's kind of hard to find with um, with all these other tweets coming in the mix. But again, it is good to have all these associations really be on there and mm-hmm. advocating. So have you thought about trying a different social media platform? I've tried that. So, like, I used the Incarcerated Loved Ones group on Facebook before, Mm -hmm. and that's where I got the data for the sibling study. Um, That's more so a support group, and so I'm not really sure if we'll find 
um, kind of just like outsiders' opinion because they are uh, really ingrained and involved, and they're only in that group if they have someone that they deem mm-hmm. a loved one incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So, starting with Twitter, seeing what we find, I think it will be more beneficial to wait like another month um, until uh, I guess the new year, new presidency, and see if that maybe dilutes those um, political tweets and seeing mm-hmm. if we find something else. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering, maybe, and like part of, so part of the show is like just kind of thinking out loud about like projects and and people who are like kind of uh, stumped a little bit methodologically. What if you looked at like local news comment pages, mm-hmm. or like if like your local news tweeted something about like I don't know whatever case happening locally, like might that be a good way to get people like if you're looking for ordinary people on Twitter, mm-hmm. which may be an oxymoron <laughs> if ordinary people are on Twitter at all. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, that might be a way to kind of... It's almost like bait. You know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, my co-author, um, she presented at CrimCon too, uh, Katie Durante. Mm-hmm. Uh, she brought that up. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. She was like, let's look at articles. And I was like thinking, that's a great idea, but I would never comment on one of those things. But I'm thinking, like, do other people? I don't know. I usually never read those comments because I don't want to cry. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. She was bringing that up. I mean, that could be a a great place to start. I was thinking if Twitter doesn't work out, we can look at other avenues. I know Reddit Mm. would be a good... um, a good platform too, because people are anonymous. They feel more so they can say whatever they want on Twitter. Yeah. People have their first and last name. Um, so they're less anonymous, uh, with news articles. Um, now that you brought up and she brought up, maybe I should really start looking into that. Now I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to figure out a way, a way out of this puzzle for you. But yeah, I mean, if you're looking for people who have loud, awful opinions about, about stuff, I would go check. I mean, honestly, like, you know, you're not you're not going to get a lot of thoughtful discourse. I think, especially as like local news has kind of eroded, um, but that's a whole other whole other issue um, for another day. But like, I think that could be a place to to start and and get some hopefully useful data. I mean, just because like you're, they would be required to talk specifically about that subject, right? And not just, you know, I want to yell out into into the Twitter void about Donald Trump or whoever else I want to lock up, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um cool. Um so how do your how do your students like respond to this stuff? Like what kind of success do you have bringing this bringing this like into the classroom or out into the world? Um the ones that don't think I'm crazy really think I have you know some knowledge to share with them. <laughs> well, um I'm kidding. But I teach mostly marriage and family therapy courses. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually don't teach an incarceration course. That is the goal um, to teach like a familial incarceration course where Mm -hmm. we talk about like the impacts um, of being in the criminal justice system with family members and how that could impact their emotional and physical and mental well-being. So this comes up a lot when I'm doing clinical supervision. Mm -hmm. And so in my um, marriage and family therapy course where we see clients and I, I basically just watch over zoom now with, um, yeah, with the pandemic. So I live watch their sessions and a lot of times 
you would think that this wouldn't come up, but there's usually someone in the family that has been incarcerated or there's been some kind of incarceration that has affected the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then students are usually glossing over that piece. And I'm asking them, why do you just not know how to address that? Because there are impacts on the family. And a lot of times they'll say like, well, this doesn't really affect the presenting problem because that's what we do in therapy. We, they come into the presenting problem and we work with that. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not going to come in and say, oh, well, my grandfather was incarcerated. That's why I'm here. It's usually something else that's going on in their life. And then when they dive into their story, that's usually a piece of it. Mm-hmm. But understanding how and how that's impacted their life and, and why it's prevalent today is super important as well. Mm-hmm. So I think like how I bring it to students is like highlighting the fact that um, this is a really complex issue. And one, we can't gloss over it. And two, what are we doing to address it within the current context of why they're coming to therapy? Because a lot of times there is a reason that this connects. So do you think that sometimes students might gloss over it because they're, because they're afraid of it? Like, is it, is it like a, like a third rail that they might not want to just confront at all? So I think it's uh, multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I mean, just in my experience, people I've supervised, I think they collect the data, right? Mm-hmm. So we're collecting this assessment information and they're writing it down. So they're acknowledging that that's just a piece of their story, but they're not actually addressing it. So one reason could be that they just don't know how. Mm-hmm. And then another could be that it's scary Um, And then I think another is that they don't see the connection. So they're like, oh, well, that's not why they're coming in for That's just like their, you know, age, weight, mental health history, like all the all these like historical pieces that we're adding to the initial assessment. But we're not utilizing for ongoing assessment purposes. And we're not, you know, including this in any type of treatment plan. This is just Mm -hmm. some basic history. Gotcha. So this is interesting, though, because like. I think it speaks to how invisible, like the experiences of experiences of incarcerated families are, right? I mean, like when I when I teach criminology, I I talk to my students about how like everybody cares about the investigation and the trial, but then mm-hmm. after that, mm-hmm. um, the cameras go away and we move on to the next investigation. But then in reality, like you have people whose whose lives have been destroyed, um, and so maybe this is like kind of an artifact of that like especially because we think of i shouldn't say we i don't want to speak for everybody listening there may be a tendency to think of of therapists as like very very wise and like all-knowing and maybe this is my own ignorance coming through right about how therapists are trained and and the ways that that they have like what what goes into that education, I guess. I don't know. Can you make any sense of what I'm saying at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have so much to say to that. I'm like trying to think of bullet point list in my head. Please, please, so, go off. <laughs> the American Association uh, for Marriage and Family Therapy um, has recently gotten more involved in, I guess, addressing these issues. Mm-hmm. So they had me speak, um, and they interviewed me for the segment uh, called MFT's Doing Good in the World uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, for my work with incarcerated families. And I thought that was really cool that um, they had not only me, but seven other people with different topics that were super important and really cool. And some of them are my friends. So I was even more biased to be like, how awesome is this? (laughs) But um, I think they're getting more involved in acknowledging 
the criminal justice system and how it impacts families. And then also, um, I don't know if you know Chef Jeff Henderson. Mm-mm. He's a famous chef that was incarcerated. He had restaurants in Vegas, food channels. So I don't know. So um, he's actually funding a project for a colleague of mine um, that has to do with resilience for families in the, in the mm-hmm. criminal justice system. And I heard him speak. Um, at the association twice and him and his wife are just really great speakers on how this affected their family and i think that bringing in speakers like that um that have literally changed the game um in terms of you know the food network and all these other cool things he's doing for the community and and then just like spreading the research like having me uh be interviewed was really cool because people reached out to me after about collaborating and just Mm -hmm. having um like questions that they wanted to continue asking like after the mm-hmm. live q a which was really awesome to just have these discussions and then in terms of what you were saying about like therapists yeah sometimes people expect me to know everything <laughs> and i'm like i'm not an expert in that but I, I can help you or um i will literally just be like i have no idea it's really nice that you think i know this <laughs> but, um, it's, it's true that sometimes we're not trained on particular topics that people bring up in therapy and mm-hmm. we have so many things that we have to like be mindful of like ethical considerations and you know uh, kind of the main mental health things that people come in for mm-hmm. um, and so since those things are more common like anxiety depression divorce infidelity um, a lot of those things that come in um, to play that we kind of forget about these other issues that are very prevalent. Mm-hmm. So for example, like um, a lot of my training with you know divorce, infidelity, like intimate partner violence, um, parent-child dynamics, we talk about those things, but very broadly. Um, and then we don't really focus on the intersection of let's say uh, parent-child issues with domestic violence with a history of incarceration. Well, now mm-hmm. we just brought up on so many complex issues. And then what about throwing in um, you know, poverty or being mm-hmm. from a racial and ethnic uh, minority background or just any of these other things that when they're compounded, then it's like, wow, what do we do with all of this? Because this is a very complex situation. Mm-hmm. And now that we've gathered all this information, now what do we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I, I think the race factor by itself has to be something that's really, really, really challenging for a lot of therapists who, I mean, I don't, I don't know what your training looks like, but I'm guessing like in many parts of uh, many professional fields and parts of the academy, um, probably not like super in depth on uh, anti-racist behavior or even just the realities of like white supremacy in the United States and things like that. So I I would imagine that's got to be a real challenge for some therapists to overcome. Yeah, I think um, especially when Look who who's representing us. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of therapists are white, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are either older white um, males or older white females. And yes, uh, I would say marriage family therapy is definitely dominated uh, by females, but I think in the higher positions, there's still older white males. I also think that um, it's not mandatory to have a racial or ethnic. Um, cultural sensitivity training of any kind. I mean, yeah, there are those workshops offered, but are they mandated to have continuing education credits? No, we have mandated ethnic, or sorry, ethic um, training, right? We have to have a certain amount of 
ethics, continuing education, but we don't have mm-hmm. to for cultural sensitivity. So I've written a couple articles on like culturally informed um, counseling. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to view the client through their lens. Yeah. And I think that when that's mixed with incarceration, that you have to understand that it's more so an incarcerated informed lens because they are going through all of these things at the same time. And it's really the intersection of poverty, poor educational outcomes, um, poor mental health, poor physical health, uh, decrease in um, like life satisfaction and relational satisfaction. And just all of these things, which by the way, are all negative. So why are we surprised when they have cultural mistrust for us in therapy when they're sitting in front of a white privileged person? Because uh, a lot of therapists, I mean, they have a master's PhD, like Mm -hmm. that's privilege within itself. And then a lot of them being white is another form of privilege. So like something I talk about is like the multiple forms of privilege in front of you. And I think, um, it was really difficult for me when I worked in an incarcerated facility because, um, I was surrounded by people that thought I had a lot of privilege more than I did because I look very white. And then on top of that, um, I was also suffering through like, you know, imposter syndrome of, I was 23 years old as like training as a therapist. So people think, what do you know? You're not Mm -hmm. married. You don't have kids. You look like you're 12. So I was suffering through that. Right. Um, but they didn't know that they thought I had all this privilege and all this knowledge, which can be obviously like very beneficial, but also, um, very harmful to the therapeutic relationship unless you really validate these concerns and gain that trust and not assume that we should go in and and have trust when they have no trust with the system. And from what they know, I'm someone just working in this facility. They don't, they don't know if I have power to get them in trouble or um, if anything they say can be used against them. I mean, obviously I explained that, but that people can think I'm lying. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there's all of those factors that make things really complicated, especially that marriage and family therapists aren't normally employed in these settings. Mm-hmm. So if we're not in there, how can we start helping? We can't. We have to get in the door first. Yeah. And like, where do you even know how to start too, right? And it's interesting that like, because you, you brought up like all the ethical, um, like continuing education credits. Um, like, it's, it's interesting that like, cultural sensitivity or like don't be a racist jerk does not fall under the umbrella of ethics right um especially because we know that like ways that we try to quantify things like depression and anxiety tend to have a pretty middle class white like slant to it right and so like ways that these things might manifest in people who aren't white upper middle class like could be different um ways that they might respond to questions about that um, may may seem like elevated levels of depression and on the flip side and in, in reality just aren't there. Um, and like, again, like this is a, a dramatic oversimplification. You're probably thinking that again, I sound like a complete fool, <laughs> but like it just, it's just, I never, and I never thought about it before because like in my world, like we don't, we don't go through any kind of ethical training, right? There's the, like the the anti or the the sexual harassment training every couple of years and that's basically it right um the idea that you should be aware of of privileges that you have and privileges that your students don't have or your your the population you're working with doesn't have 
um, like that should completely be part of ethics training and just baffling. Right. And like, I think this goes to like how arrogant we are as a, as a profession when it comes to issues of race. I think it's stated, but not in my, my opinion, not very well. It's not something that's like set in stone. For example, something that's very like, drilled into us as therapists is you cannot sleep with your clients, mm-hmm. right? Um, for obvious reasons, right? And we say that over and over, but why don't we emphasize the same thing as we cannot uh, perpetuate injustice? Mm-hmm. Um, we cannot treat someone differently based on their race or ethnicity. Like, why aren't we kind of making those obvious statements? Because in ethics courses I take, and it's very much like, you cannot get into a relationship with your client. Dual relationships are inappropriate. And then there's all these reasons why. Well, there's all these reasons why in the literature that we um, we should, you know, care about culturally informed care and um, kind of practice cultural humility. But then in the ethics, it's not it's not stated super well. And I just wish mm-hmm. it was revised because I think that's something that we should be pushing for. And yeah, of course it's acknowledged that we should be um, having difficult conversations about race, but is anyone writing a manual on how to do that in, in the therapy world? Because I'm waiting for it. <laughs> There's another project for you <laughs> right oh, there. Just adding it to my <laughs> yep. right now. Yeah. I mean, you got to write the, write the books that you want to see. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. As you're talking, I, I remembered something from Howard Zinn's people's history of the United States where he, he said, never be on the side of the, of the executioners. Right. And I think that too many professional degrees are just kind of glossed over, <laughs> uh, uh, methods of, of finding ways to like perpetuate the status quo. And it's really interesting to think about like how therapy, and like all its forms can do that. But like there's been some criticism of the mindfulness movement um, and how mindfulness kind of, so the critics would, would say that the idea of mindfulness just encourages people to accept like the status quo. Like if I'm, if I'm really depressed and anxious because I feel powerless to change like all of this injustice in the world, um, I may be told to just kind of accept that, right? And just learn to appreciate what I have. And, you know, I have my health and I have my kids and and my job and everything's okay for me. And just kind of forget that everything's, don't, yeah, just forget that everything sucks for however many other people. Like I've heard it even called, there's a book I think like Mick Mindfulness maybe um, that um, talks about that. I was just just curious if you had, because it seems like we're kind of, moving in that direction and i'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts i think you're raising great points and it's something we actually don't talk about that much i mean we talk about mindfulness in the therapy world and i think it works on an individual level um for in terms of mental health like uh practicing mindfulness if you're experiencing anxiety or depression um doing some mindfulness techniques but i think on the broader scale of society no we shouldn't just be okay and accepting and being being um i don't know how to say besides okay like why are we okay with the craziness and injustice that's going on no we shouldn't just be mindfully okay with that yes we can practice mindfulness on an individual level and and 
you know, I just feel like that's so different when it comes to societal perspective. And like when you were just saying like, yeah, you can go to your home and you have your kids and everything is safe for you. Well, I always try to say that, like, what about everyone else and like the greater good? And why do we have these positions of power if we're not going to use them for good? Mm -hmm. For example, like we both have PhDs. What are we doing with them? That's going to be good for the world. Like if we have all this power, what are we doing with it? What are we going to do to make the world a better place? And why do I have this position of power if I'm not going to use it? Like Mm -hmm. for what then? Yeah, no, uh, that, that moment of like self-reflection for me was like, earth earth shattering <laughs> like because like once you get through the impot well i don't think anybody ever gets all the way through the imposter syndrome but like once you start to see cra- cracks in the imposter syndrome and start to realize like because as a grad student like you know and the grad students listening to this you know we empathize with you grad students are treated like garbage in so many programs right regardless of what discipline you're in and so much of it is about hazing for the sake of hazing and so it's really easy to get these professional degrees but then feel like you're absolutely worthless because your advisor or your program just treated you like garbage right and then so once you realize that you have all this power it's I mean, at least to me, it came as like a huge shock, right? Like, like, oh shit! Like, of course I do. Of course I have all this privilege. Of course I have all this power. Um, why am I? Why am I doing it to? Why am I not using it at all? You know, why am I so concerned about writing stuff that nobody's ever going to read? <laughs> but I should be doing other stuff with this. So, um, um. So to go to go back to your students, um, because you said for the the few that don't think that you're crazy, <laughs> um, what? So why do they think that you're crazy? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I might be considered a little bit of a rebel. I'm doing the research that nobody wants to do. Um, the research that you know requires more IRB approval because it's a protected population. Um, and already, um, you know, incarcerated individuals are protected, but also, uh, when you are seeing clients, they are also protected. So it's duly complicated mm-hmm. to do research, um, the way I'm doing it. So I think they might think like I'm making things harder for myself, especially when I'm, you know, commenting on projects and how to improve them. Yes. The project will be a lot cooler and more informative and interesting if, you know, we add these facets but it's going to be a lot harder of a road to get there. Um, and there's always, you know, barriers and battles that you have to jump through uh, when you're working with these kinds of populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they might think that's a little bit crazy that I'm just making more work for myself. And then also um, when I have these discussions and like I said, I don't teach a criminology course. So I usually incorporate this in, um, about familial impacts and like how you would deal with a client, um, that has a partner incarcerated and they were like, kind of just like, you know, just like every other client, every other couple that their partners away, but this isn't just your long distance partner that you can FaceTime whenever you want. Like there's these other barriers and structures and like, what are you doing to address their emotional concerns and even just talking through the logistics? A lot of therapy isn't just talking about, um, you know, your future plans and your current feelings. It's also 
how are we going to maneuver through this together? Mm-hmm. And how can I even assist in that process and unpack that with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think people uh, who don't have like a familiarity with the with the prison system, I think, are probably baffled, right, by how how expensive it how expensive it is to have a family member incarcerated. Oh. Like that right mm-hmm. there. I, I think has to be pretty mind blowing for some students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've discussed this before um, about like barriers of phone calls and transportation and those kinds of logistical barriers. Um, and then I've also talked about that in terms of like when I worked in uh, an incarcerated facility, actually working with the par- the partner or the parent or whoever's coming to visit. And there, there are reasons why they weren't coming. Sometimes it was logistical and other times it was like, well, I'm going to travel, you know, an hour for someone to talk to us. And then these issues aren't going to be resolved after incarceration because we can't afford this therapy anyway after. So there's no continuation of community resources because, yeah, they were receiving everything for free within the facility. Like I was an unpaid intern. Mm-hmm. Um, would they have hired me after? I mean, I was family services coordinator for a little bit, but that was to do the admin. They weren't paying therapists to do their job. So it's it's both both sides of the coin. Why would, you know, the therapist, like we have to feed ourselves too, and they weren't paying us anything. And then the incarcerated individual, when they get out, how are they going to continue these services when, the community isn't providing them and they don't have the money for it either. Mm -hmm. So the only one profiting is these administrators in private prisons that were profiting off us. Yeah. It's a racket. Um, so you must've had moments with your students where you can, you convert them, right? You, you brought them over to your side. You've made them into rebels too. Has has that happened for you? If this is a video, yeah. we, like, we would be able to see you beaming with pride right now. <laughs> I, uh, I love that you said that I'm beaming with pride because I really am. I'm so proud of those students that have come on over to the dark side. Yeah, the light. Yeah, come over to the light. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they have, especially when they ask me, to do research or how they can help. I'm like, yes, that's a win. Like if you are asking me what you can do, that means I somehow convinced you that this is an important topic. And I think what we forget in research too, like we think our topic is so cool. Like we think what we're doing is the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter unless other people think what we're doing is important or else mm-hmm. we're going to be doing this by ourselves. Yeah. And yes, I force my friends to do research with me, right? That have PhDs. But what about the general public? How are we communicating this? Like platforms like this, like what you're doing here is just so cool because anybody can listen and be informed. Mm -hmm. So we should be educating the general public. So yeah, it's cool to educate my like, you know, undergrad masters and PhD students, but are they communicating that information to the communities? And am I doing that as someone with power? I mean, you know, as an assistant professor, we we think we have no power, but we, we do have some power. Um, mm-hmm. You have that title and people are like, OK, you're part of a university, which university? And and um, I, I think that we should use that. Mm-hmm. I'll use my title to, to get on a platform to speak about something that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that um, as like public scholarship has kind of become like my thing. Uh, so this is, we're recording this on December 1st. So it's going to come out sometime in January. Um, but 
for us or for me, CrimCon was like a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago. Um, and so the, f- the first meeting of this free conference, right? Um, over 1,600 unique visitors um, across three days, like a, a smashing success, right? Um, and I talked to somebody who found out about it as it was happening, who, who wasn't presenting. Um, I, I don't think they went to any sessions. Um, but they work in criminal justice reform. And they saw, so they followed me on Twitter, and they saw that I was, like, I, I put out, I've said several times, and if you're listening to this now in January, please get in touch with me if you have ideas for ways we can grow CrimCon. Um, they saw this, and so they wanted to talk to me about it. And so I, I had this long phone conversation with this person who was like, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this, but academic research is useless. <laughs> it has it has no bearing on policy. It's not helpful for anybody involved in the system. We need to you need to do better to bring like justice involved people into your work. And I'm like, I agree. <laughs> I, I appreciate I appreciate your concern. Um, and and please please give me you know um, some ideas. But it just it just speaks to like how how huge the gulf is, I think, between like what's happening in universities and kind of the journals that we publish in that we only read, like we're the only people who can read it because they're paywalled. Um and then what like people sitting in court right now or sitting in prison right now need. <laughs> and it's just it's so frustrating, you know. So it was, it was a good, it was a good humbling, a good humbling moment for me. Like I just changed the world. This is great. Changed academia forever. And then actually you didn't. <laughs> I mean, I think you did do a lot, um, for academics. You know what I mean? Like we got a platform to speak and, and collaborate, but what they were saying, I, I think makes perfect sense. Like, I'm sure you want to get this out to the public. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you want to communicate this research, but it's hard to engage the academics and the public at the same time because yep. we are put under these constraints, academics, where we have to present all the time. We have to, um, you know, publish or perish. Mm-hmm. I hate that statement. I, yeah. Oh, I hate the whole. I hate the whole model. Right. Like the first whatever dean out there has the has the guts to be like, you know what? We're we're going to abandon this model and we're going to count public engagement as as scholarship because it is it is scholarship and i think way more important than anything that's being published in any journal yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i mean we would have we should be writing op-eds we should be doing public lectures and and everything and it's just kind of lumped into service which accounts for five to ten percent of your annual evaluation and just like who who gives a rip which is like it should in my opinion it should be the other way around so if I ever become dean, come work for me. I guess <laughs> I will. I will yeah. completely <laughs> radically uh, change your. <laughs> just totally upset the apple cart because um, it like it needs to happen, right? Especially as people lose faith in college. I don't know. I'm feeling really soapboxy today. I apologize. People aren't listening to this to listen yeah, to I me. Love it. You're to everything I care <laughs> about, and um, I love the public lecture idea. I just did. Um like an Instagram, I don't, I don't know, um, just basic conversation on Thanksgiving um, for women transforming science. And it was just a three minute conversation. It was me and um, 
a colleague of mine, um, research on materialism, mental health, and physical health, and um, relational satisfaction. And basically that uh, materialism impacts your mental health and relational satisfaction in negative ways. So basically the more materialistic you are, the lower you rated your partner on relational satisfaction. And then same thing for your own mental health. Your own, your mental health was significantly correlated with your materialism. So I thought that was very interesting. And then I think like communicating that on Thanksgiving was super important because it's like, why aren't we thankful for what we already have? And plus what we know about materialism in studies that I ran myself suffered through the stats, by the way, I'm not a statistician, <laughs> but um, you know, to the most basic level, just communicating that to the public saying the more materialistic you are, uh, the more negatively you're going to be viewing your relationship. Like just mm -hmm. think about that basic statement on Thanksgiving where we're thankful for what we have. And then black Friday is crazy. Cyber Monday is crazy where we just order a bunch of stuff. And then we subconsciously like your relationship is a lot less, um, I don't know, satisfying just to put it in simple terms. Yeah. So I think like public scholarship, what you're talking about is so important. And that was literally a three minute video just explaining the results. And I got so much positive feedback saying like, this is exactly what we need. Like explain it in layman's terms. And yes, I'm great at that. I, I will have a chill <laughs> conversation with anybody about research, but I think it's about getting on platforms that are going to want my voice to be amplified. And I think, People that look like me aren't considered scholars, um, so I think that's a whole separate issue. I mean, I'm 28, I'm Hispanic, I'm Arabian. Um, I think like those things, and also that, you know, I don't work at a research institution, I work at a teaching institution, so I think that research um, isn't something that my colleagues are doing as often as ones that are at our ones. Mm -hmm. So I think all those things come into play, but the public scholarship piece is so important. And how do we get people's voices amplified that want to communicate to the community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's so, that's so interesting. That's so cool. So like materialism and partner satisfaction thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you think it's because like people who are materialistic view their partner as like an acquisition. You know what I mean? Like it's like a literal trophy wife or trophy husband. I mean, that's an idea. I mean, maybe. Um, so a lot of it from like what we were discussing had to do with like, if you're spending um, lots of money on materials, your partner may not agree with the way you're spending your finances. Mm -hmm. So um, what I've noticed just doing couples therapy Infidelity and money problems are the biggest things people come to therapy for in terms of couples therapy. Mm -hmm. um, we might think it's other things, but no, nope, we're fighting about money and cheating. So yeah. um, if you are spending finances in a way that your partner disagrees with and you're not having those financial conversations, you are less satisfied with your partner. So I think that's the main reason. Um, I also think that it's about the time spent. So what do we know about, you know, basic uh, relationship research, if we're spending quality time together and it's something that we both are enjoying, it might be a lot of money. It might not. I mean, it really mm -hmm. depends on the activity you're doing. But I think that if you are out shopping and purchasing materials, which I think people forget that that's very time consuming, whether it's just scrolling online or going to a store, you're spending less time with your partner. Mm -hmm. So I think those are things that really we focus on about the clinical implications like 
Why aren't we having these conversations in therapy about spending? And also, why aren't we emphasizing um, spending time together? Mm -hmm. These are kind of obvious things that I guess people just forget to do in a relationship. And as therapists, we're like, hello, this is your reminder to spend time with your partner and also to make sure you're fulfilling their needs in multiple ways and not just shopping fill a void. Yeah. No, I did a billion years ago. I did my master's thesis on compulsive shoppers. And (laughs) it was super interesting. Um, Just the, the ways that they managed their behavior was, was so, was so fascinating. Um, And, and the things that they, and I mean, it's it's been so long since I, I looked at this work, but like the ways that they justified their behavior, um, whether they were like collectors who had just kind of gone kind of overboard versus I remember there was one person who said that they would buy if they saw somebody at like a department store pick up something off the rack, consider it and put it back, that they would buy it immediately because somebody else had had it. And there was another person who who put they they froze their credit card in a block of ice to try to prevent what? them. And yeah, they froze it in a block of ice to try to prevent themselves from using it. But then they they broke and they were like, "I need to I need to shop." And so they put the ice in the microwave to try to melt it. But then, of course, what? like fried fried their credit card. Yeah. Yep. Okay. This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> it was intense. It was. It was super, and it was really, it was really intense. Um, some of the stuff that they had done, and just like the ways the people who whose partners didn't know, like mm-hmm. that there was this issue going on, and the lengths that they would go to try to hide new purchases or like right. rush out to the mail. Like I'm, you, I'm sure you've seen all this stuff, but it's just I don't think I think yeah. people think of like compulsive shopping as like a silly thing, <laughs> and it's actually it can be really destructive behavior, like any kind of addiction. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. And it's not usually my normal line of research. Um, but since it has to do with mental and physical health, I was like, yeah, why isn't anyone in my field doing this? And like, whenever I find like a research gap like that, I'm like, okay, I see other people doing this, but why aren't marriage and family therapists doing this research? And we looked at it through a medical family therapy lens to kind of understand the intersection between physical and mental health. And literally nobody has done it. And I was like, okay, I guess this got into my test list. So I guess things that nobody else wants to do or wants to tackle, I'm like, all right, add it to my list. I got this. I, yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's how this podcast started as just like, I have tenure now. My tenure process wasn't the hardest, but like it was still a challenge. Right. Um, so what can I do now to kind of give back to the Academy to try to smooth the road for people um, coming, coming behind me, which then, turned into CrimCon as like an offshoot of that. Um, so yeah. And like, again, like it's great. I'm glad that people appreciate it. Um, it's not going to be promoted to full, <laughs> you know, um, which is fine. I'm not, I'm good. It's cool. <laughs> and this is, the, this is more, this is more important. It honestly is, is more important. Like I was thinking today, like if I just hang out with my kids and never publish again and just do like public scholarship stuff, um, I'm fine with that, honestly. So I feel like you're gonna publish again. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tough out here in the four four world. 
So we'll see. Wow, four four. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. I'm four three and I'm crying. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's something. It's something. Um, what else we got going on that you wanna that you wanna hype up? So I'm using a data set called the Multi-Site Study for Families, Partnering, and Parenting. Okay. So within this data set, they collected dyadic data with um, incarcerated fathers and Mm -hmm. their um, non-incarcerated Mm co-parent or romantic partner. So basically, um, for inclusion of the study, the male had to be incarcerated within one of five states. And he had to identify a female partner in which he had a shared child with. Mm -hmm. Could be romantically involved, still could not be, but had to have a shared child. And then um, in identifying a child, um, they said pick someone closest to eight years old. Mm -hmm. Um, So it could have been a 17-year-old child if they only had one. But if they had multiple children, the one closest to eight, to answer these questions of you know, about, and then also, um, questions that explored like depression, PTSD, um, prior incarceration, um, dyadic adjustment, just a lot of cool variables like treatment. Mm. This is a marriage and family therapist dream. This data set is amazing. Yeah. And, uh, one of the original researchers, um, is working with me on a couple of the papers. So I put out a couple papers with this data set and I'm not done. I'm going through all of it. I'm thinking it's so cool because how often do we have co-parenting data or how often do we have dyadic data where you can study a partnership, mm-hmm. which is super important for marriage and family therapists, particularly because that's all we do talk about relationships. But um, I think it's important in general to just look at how one person is impacting another person. And this is your partner. I mean, your partner impacts you on the day to day, even if they're incarcerated or not. Um, and then exploring their romantic relationship, their co-parenting relationship, their relationship with their ch- their children. So I'm looking at um, various different variables, but that's just something that I think is really cool right now. And hopefully everyone else thinks it's cool. And I can use all the collaborators possible. I work with um, criminologists, sociologists, psychologists, uh, public health researchers. I've worked with pharmacists, just kind of collaborating all together and looking at different perspectives because sometimes um, I will be like, I literally never thought of that. Like, mm-hmm. that's just not my scope, but I do think we should go that route. And I think it's really cool to have all these broad perspectives to make sure we're covering multiple areas. So it's just something I'm really excited about right now. I think I have four papers under review with that data set. Um, and then I'm, I have like seven or eight tabs open <laughs> with other <laughs> projects um, with this data set. Uh, and my dissertation also um, utilized this data set. I think one study that was really cool for me, though, just because I'm uh, I'm not stat savvy, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So um, we utilized a growth curve mm-hmm. to, for all the waves. So like um, interviews were at baseline, nine months, 18 months, 34 months. So looking at trajectories of change for incarcerated co-parents based on their racial and ethnic background. And what I noticed was... Um, something weird was going on for the Hispanic population. So the results show that, you know, obviously there's a decline, you know, as you would think, um, just theoretically, if someone's incarcerated, the co-parenting relationship will decline. But why specifically for the Hispanic population, there was, you know, a pretty steep decline. But then when looking at like the white and black individuals that were in these relationships, 
they weren't having these problems. There was like a very, very small decline. Mm-hmm. And then for the Hispanic population, there was a lot steeper. And I don't know why. And I mean, these are my people. My mom was born in Cuba. Um, mm-hmm. I speak Spanish. I'm so confused on what's going on for them. And I want to know why. And this study was kind of the only one that illuminated that um, and shine light on their population mm-hmm. because all the other studies were just at baseline. So there wasn't really huge racial and ethnic differences, but then looking at it over time, it was really the decline for me. So I was thinking, what can I do for this population in a future study? And yeah, this study is still under review. So yeah. um, I, I would want to start a follow up already. <laughs> um, but once it's published, I want to figure out what are the next steps uh, for this particular population of Hispanic individuals. So are there data there that would allow you to look at it like within the umbrella of the Hispanic label? So could you look at like Mexican American families and Cuban American families just to see if they're okay. Cause I was going to say like, that's, that's your, that's what I would do first, right. To see like within group, mm-hmm. is there, is there one like population that is driving this? And I don't know why there would be theoretically, but and, and so like that goes back to everything about race and, and again right like treating mm-hmm. treating Hispanics in the United States as as one umbrella when very obviously um that's not true and not fair um mm-hmm. so what what are the papers you have under review with this data and and by the way it's shocking to me as somebody who's not from like a therapist background that you doing like marriage and family stuff to say that it's so rare to have data <laughs> that has has data from like both partners. This seems like really shocking to me. Like it seems like the most obvious thing in the world that there would be tons of data like that out there, but I guess not. Not in large data sets like this. This said 1400 couples. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, yeah, I published case studies that have to do with like small couples and families and in qualitative work, but I think quantitatively it's really hard to collect this data in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not a lot of marriage and family therapists that are doing this type of research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe at least if they were informing these studies that people were collecting these very large data sets um, and saying like, hey, we should collect from both partners mm-hmm. um, and we should label it as such and we should study their particular relationship. That's very obvious to me. Um, so I would like to shout out everyone and welcome them to collect dyadic <laughs> data. And also, APIM is not my new favorite thing. So <laughs> maybe it's not that savvy that like I just love how easy APIM is. But there's probably other ways um, that people are utilizing dyadic data too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and allowing me to drag all of this out of you <laughs> over the last so little much bit. <laughs> You made me not nervous. I was I was hanging out with you this whole time. That's my job. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. 
All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.